and welcome to the Novel Traveller podcast. My name is Michelle Walsh-Jackson and I'm the Novel Traveller. Well, my guest this week is no stranger to your airwaves as it's journalist and broadcaster Tina Gates. Her silken tones have graced independent radio news for years and she's also a regular panellist on The Elaine Show on Virgin Media. Tina has done some wonderful work to bring about awareness for caregivers in Ireland, as she too is main caretaker for her 93-year-old dad who suffers from ALS. But Tina has certainly been on some novel travels, which I'm sure you're going to enjoy hearing about. And I'm also going to take some time at the end of this podcast to talk about my own travel experiences, as this is the last in the series. I'm hoping to give you some insight into how I wrote my new novel, Journey to the Heartland, and just have a good old chat about why we love travel so much. So for now, sit back, relax with your glass of wine or your cup of tea and enjoy while we go on this week's Novel Travels. Well, with me today, I have Tina Gates, journalist and broadcaster, and she's also quite a wonder woman as well because you've done a lot of pioneering work for for caregivers, haven't you, Tina? Yes, um, I didn't uh, sort of um, choose to be an advocate for family carers, but I I ended up being so because my dad is 95 and uh, he lives with me. So um, I've found myself shouting quite a bit and uh, developing almost a kind of a movement. So, yeah. You're doing you're doing great work. And and you sent me a beautiful photograph of yourself and your dad back in Tremor, back in the day when he was teaching you to swim. Is that right? Yeah, that's actually, there's a family controversy over that one as well. <laughs> it was my first trip to Ireland. It was also my first time in a plane. Um, I was four years of age and the family came over from, um, my dad had um, left his home in Dublin and um, had brought his wife and two boys over to England um, for a new life in England. And I was born in England a couple of months after arrival, an accident of birth. So uh, at the age of four, he brought us all back on our first family holiday back to Ireland. And um, we flew into Belfast from, uh, from, from England on the first, and it was, it was a Viscount. So the, the propeller planes, I can, I can, I'm always fascinated because Virgin, when they uh, relaunched in, um, or launched in Ireland many, many years ago, they started with Viscount. And my dad was able to show me that that was the first plane that I'd been on. So that was quite. Yeah. But yeah, we flew into Belfast and then he hired a car and uh, we drove all around Ireland and uh, we visited his relations, my mum's relations, and we did all the sites. And down in the south, we went to Tremor, and that's where dad. Um, gave me my first swimming lesson but according to my mom who's now passed but my mom always said that it it was actually not intended because she had a fear of water and wouldn't go anywhere near the sea so she was sitting up on the beach screaming while she (laughs) noticed my dad going for a swim having left me on a rock but unfortunately the tide came in and according to her swept me from the rock and um, she reckons that I paddled ashore I don't know the truth of the matter (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that explains your great sense of adventure then because you have done incredible swimming in different places and in triathlons and you know you're a really adventurous traveler aren't you yeah I've, I've I've been really really lucky 
Um, it's actually that comes with a twist, really, because I have suffered and struggled with obesity all my adult life. And back in 2010, I kind of famously or even maybe even infamously, infamously <laughs> lost 10 stone in a year. And it, it, it kind of pushed me off into a whole adventurous zone of doing things that I never thought I'd be able to do. And I started kayaking and cycling and hiking. And I found myself on some of the highest mountains in the world. I, I went to Everest Base Camp and I went beyond that to Island Peak. Um, which wow. is um, the technical climb on a mountain range in the same Everest range in Nepal. Um, I've um, kayaked yeah. white water rapids in in uh, Uganda, and I've, I've oh. just had a, oh, and, and scuba diving. I did some scuba diving as well. So yeah, it really. Now I'm struggling with my weight again, and I'm hoping. Um, this this lockdown has been really hard for me, so I'm hoping to to um, to lose weight again this coming year and to get back to my my big aim at the moment is to get back to climb Carantool by the end of the year. So uh, well, well, that that's not an easy feat because I I was down there about a year and a half ago, and it, it's a big challenge, especially that it is. ladder. It really is difficult. And um, just to go back to base camp, I mean, what is there? Is it an incredible? place to be the people you're with well like what is it like there I can't imagine what base camp of Everest is like it was life-changing for me island peak was was life-changing for me but um we spent three weeks getting to base camp and beyond um I went with with Pat Falvey who's of course an incredible Irish adventurer and uh, um he, his heart, I think, really lifted the, the, the troops as well. But we sang our way through Everest. Like we were known as uh, people heard us coming from miles away. We, we literally yeah. sang our way it's like this massive Von Trapp family. Oh, what were you singing? <laughs> Can you remember any songs you yeah. sang? Um, we did an incredible version of Bohemian Rhapsody in a tea house um, <laughs> halfway up to Everest Base Camp, which I think will probably be talked about for years. But everything, <laughs> even Christmas carols, when we rang out of songs, we did everything, <laughs> Irish ditties, um, rock songs. Oh, my goodness. We had, yeah, but and, and I mean, with altitude, you'd think that you would be saving your breath. Um, <laughs> For, for putting one foot in front of the other, but actually we were stretching our lungs and singing, but it's incredibly beautiful. It's absolutely extraordinary. And being in Nepal has this sense as well of, you get a crash course on, on what's important in life and the priorities in life because you, you're meeting um, these people who are, are, are living in the, the, you know, in very scarce conditions, if you like, and, and children who are, who have, who appear to have so little, and yet they have so much and it, it makes you very, very emotional or it certainly had that effect on me. And yeah. uh, I remember coming back home um, after my whole Everest adventure and, and about six months later, a friend of mine who's a plumber was uh, fixing a toilet for me in my ensuite and because it wasn't flushing and he said he said, how long has that been out? And I said, oh, about six months. And he said, well, why didn't you call me before? And I said, Oh, and I said, it, it worked perfectly fine. I just had to throw a bucket of water down it. And he was looking at me in complete amusement because I was still on mountain time. Because, like, you know, the idea of having something that you could sit on um, and and remove. Yeah, that was from, a luxury. <laughs> the fact that I didn't have a flushable handle, that didn't really, you know, that didn't come into it. It was already a luxury, yeah. So, uh, I mean, anybody who's been out in Nepal or any of, um, you know, sort of the, the high places in the world like that, um, the, 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 you, you'd be familiar with drop toilets and uh, 
in, in Africa, I used drop toilets and there was no drop. Like, you know, you were literally standing on top of a, of, a, of a drop hole. But over in the mountains, it's incredible because um, you're looking down and several hundred feet <laughs> underneath you. It oh can be goodness. a very windy experience yeah, to say the <laughs> I'd say you'd be, you'd be scared and you definitely would want to go after looking down. <laughs> Oh, well, there was, I was, I climbed Elbrus in, in Russia, the Caucasus in Russia. And, um, and I remember um, having to have a rope tied around me as I went down to the, to the, the, the drop toilet, because I was afraid of spinning off the end of, of, um, of the mountain and, <laughs> and well, not coming. Where about in Russia is that? And um, that was um, Mount Elbrus is, is is one of the the, the highest mountains in the world, and uh, it's it's um, it's it's in the Caucasus in Russia, or or I say the, the Kerry of Russia. Oh really? And, um, yeah, that was an incredible place to to go to, and incredible going. I found I found Russia itself extraordinary, and and um, on that trip I went. You know, I was in Moscow for a while as well, but I found it. It really, I found it really freaky in my mind because everything is so big, and you see the um, the ruins as you drive through the countryside. Um, you see the ruins of of the, the the incredible mechanical revolution that they had there, and you see the massive gas lines and 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 the power. You can you can nearly feel the power uh, of Russia as she was um, through the through the you know the powerful. Um, stages of its history and it kind of takes your breath away a little bit but yeah the, that that mountain um elbrus was extraordinary it's it's you can still smell the sulfur it's volcanic and uh, oh, really? um you you feel it, it it's a very dramatic mountain and it's very weather prone and it really all depends on whether you get the weather window to, to manage to get the summit and we were fortunate now we actually pa falvi was leading that expedition as well and He's got an uncanny gift for seeing the window, and uh, and we got a great window. There were several trips up at the same time as us, and we were the only ones who managed to make it to the summit. I mean, um, th- there is something about pushing yourself, isn't there, and reaching a summit like that that helps helps you really, really see a different side of life in yourself. Yeah, well, the, the biggest peak I did was um, was Island Peak. I mentioned that that was in the Everest range, and that's uh, that's even higher than Base Camp, and that was a technical climb. So this this point. Um, and I'm literally standing on a summit, which is the size of a coffee table at the, at the top of this mountain. And it's um, like it's 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 over 20,305 feet. And I'll, I'll include the five foot because that was the hardest. I'd say so. But I was standing up there and I was watching birds flying hundreds of feet down below me. And I, it, it wasn't even that I had this feeling. It was that I had this complete certainty. And it was probably oxygen deprivation. <laughs> but um, I had this certainty that I could do anything in the world. Um, and I, I, just, I just felt, you know, I, I, I kind of had this flashback to being a child and, and watching um, the, the Discovery Channel on TV and, and seeing these professional adventurers doing extraordinary things. And I suddenly realized that I had done something that extreme. And I just felt I could do anything, anything in the world. And that feeling didn't, didn't, um, it didn't go away for ages. It kind of, I got a good, I'd say a year and a half run out of that. You know, it, it really sort of boosted my confidence and, and, and kind of changed the way um, I lived my life when I came back, back home. I mean, the simplicity of Nepal affected me and the, I suppose um, the success I was after having and pushing myself beyond my own limits, that's, that affected me in ways that changed my entire 
outlook on life really you know it's 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 a brilliant brilliant achievement and something you, you probably should should pat yourself on the back more and start kind of delve back into it and think about that because like if, if i had achieved that I, i'd be thinking about it all the time i'd imagine <laughs> i'd absolutely it's something I, I do have a dream to climb kilimanjaro even after speaking to ruth scott and her telling me how dreadful it was <laughs> i do absolutely love the idea well i did it i don't think it's dreadful <laughs> oh excellent we've got another viewpoint brilliant we have to have words with ruth um Tell me about about Kilimanjaro. Kilimanjaro was extraordinary. And I I tell you, the most magical moment for me was the actual, like, like obviously you spend a lot of time coming up through loads of different um, weather patterns and geographical um, changes. Because as you go up the mountain, you go from, you know, this this rich African vegetation to um, a kind of desert type appearance and and then a kind of a tundra, a frozen type experience. So you're seeing all these different... um, places with within the one mountain um but but the most magical to me was that the final night when we were going for the summit and um we got up in the middle of the night because you climb when the when the ice is is hard you know when the ground is frozen it's the easiest to get traction and particularly on that there's a long gravel slope on the last night of climbing so you go and it's really really cold in the morning at around three o'clock and I got up out of the tent and, and I climbed out of the tent and I, I and I sort of felt nervous and apprehensive and maybe a little sick. <laughs> and then out into the night, I looked and all the way up through the rest of the peak of the mountain, stretching off into the darkness, you could see lights. And they were the lights of other climbers who were also making their way to the top of the mountain. And there was something very spiritual about it. And it was just the feeling that we were all united with these people that we didn't know, that there were hundreds of other people climbing on this mountain on this night, and we could see their headlights leading the way for us. And then we took our position in the chain and we became the headlights leading for somebody else. And I found it, and again, maybe it was the oxygen deprivation, but I found it really, really moving and and, and very, very spiritual. And then when the hardest point for me was um, when sun broke, when the, when the sun broke through. And normally that gives you this sense of um, um, strength on the mountain. When the, I find when the sun rises, all of a sudden you get this burst of strength. But for me on Kilimanjaro, it kind of highlighted the fact that we still had so far to go. Uh-huh. And, and the toughest part, I think, for most people is that you talk about this scree. There's a massive scree um, bank that you have to climb that goes on for hours. So you're taking a foot and you're, a, you know, a step and your foot is sliding back down um, like a cartoon character. You're running in yeah. one circle. One step, one step forward, two steps back kind of thing you feel. Yeah. And I had climbed, I'd stayed a week in Crow Patrick in a, in a hostel at the foot of Crow Patrick. And I climbed Crow Patrick three times a day for a week because they have a similar scree. So I got used to climbing Crow Patrick. And when I was on that difficult point in Kilimanjaro, I told myself, you've done it on Crow Patrick and you did it for a week on Crow Patrick. You only have to do it for a couple of hours here. And that got me up that extra elevation. And then all of a sudden you're back up and you're you're seeing the the, the remains of, of the ice up on the top of the mountain. And you just have um, possibly maybe a half a kilometre to go then to, to reach the that famous sign that everybody falls over. I, I hope you got your photo at the top of it, did you, Tina? I hope you, you yeah. have that. I was in a state of semi-collapse, I think. <laughs> but yeah, I got it. <laughs> oh, very but I good. Loved it. 
to go back. I'd love to do those things again. And you're right. I want to tap into those experiences now because I'm struggling with my weight again. So I'm using that as a way to remind me that, you know, I've, I've allowed my world to shrink a little because of the fact that I've put on all this weight again. So I want to tap into those times. I and think use we're, the- yeah, yeah. Cause we're all struggling a little bit with this, with this limitation and these lockdowns and this, this, this it's a form of imprisonment, really. You are imprisoned, you know, within your 5k and, and it's not in the nature of people. It's in the nature of people to travel and expand. So, you know, I, th- I think the best thing we can do, like you say, is delve into ourselves and see, we can bring ourselves yeah. out of it you know yeah um, i'm looking forward to the end of it i can't imagine i mean I, I i will never take travel for granted again oh my god i mean all the times that i have said that oh i'd love to go such and such a place and i'd love to go such and, such, and i haven't done it that will never happen again, again. <laughs> give me back my planes my trains yeah. absolutely get out there and and start looking at the world again i mean and oh we, we've we, I never take it for granted again I'll, I'll always always push the, the boat out in future yeah absolutely we I think we all will um, and, and uh, you mentioned Uganda there I'm just I'm just so fascinated by the places you're mentioning and you went white water rafting which which I've done um, in, in Peru and, and I absolutely adored it but did you did you go on a, on a long trek or mm. what yeah, we went with Concern and it was the first um, multi-sport adventure um, trip that Concern put together. So it was all a bit experimental. It was decided, obviously, that the trip was planned ahead. But we were going to do this whitewater um, uh, canoe trip down the Nile. But we decided that we would link the two with mountain biking. So we, we cycled for um, a couple of hundred kilometers across Africa and camped out as well across Uganda and camped out. And that was an an extraordinary experience because we were seeing parts of the countryside that um, normal tourists don't get to see. So it was a really, really unique experience. And we visited schools along the way and we brought them um, pencils and little gifts and things from Ireland. And, and that was that was lovely. Um, but but again, it was just it was such an unusual experience that we felt that we were traveling across ground that hadn't been done before. And, you know, you could smell the Nile on the air. It was extraordinary as we came out of the oh, dry... Really? Yeah, the dry baked land of Uganda. We'd spent about two or three nights um, camping out and it would rain at four o'clock precisely on the dot and we'd be cycling and we'd get soaked at four o'clock and then we'd set up camp and we'd put all our wet cycling clothes over the top of the, the tent and we'd get up the following morning and they'd still be wet. So you have this idea about Africa being so hot and of course it is, but it, yeah. was, but we, we, it was cold at night. Our clothes were wet going to bed and we were getting into wet clothes at five o'clock in the morning to get out on the bikes before the heat of the day really cracked up so we'd be we'd be there on our bikes in our wet cycling shorts pushing off feeling absolutely miserable for the first hour and then the next month the sun would come and it would dry everything out and we'd be we'd be off and happy again but as we got close to the Nile the countryside started to change and the baked dark earth started to change in color and you'd see more greenery but you could literally smell the sweetness of the Nile and you could smell the change uh, on the air and to me that was extraordinary and it was just you know again it's it's a memorable thing for me. Africa is the most amazing continent it's somewhere I really want to explore more there's something about the the people and the the nature and they're they're so much more in tune with their land you know yeah when you got to the Nile did you do anything 
Yeah, I was I was the crazy person. They they said don't cycle down the spree into the river. That's not a good idea. So of course I had to. <laughs> <laughs> so everybody was kind of you know being very cagey about getting into the Nile, and uh, and and to me I was just after cycling across a large expanse of Uganda, and it was hot and dusty and dirty. And you know, as I, as we've already said, I have a a, a love affair with the water, and uh, yeah. so yeah, as soon as I saw it, that was it. I I, I saw cycled right down and uh, and and jumped straight into into the, the river and it was just extraordinary it was amazing and then people started some of my, my colleagues started saying could I see snakes and could I see alligators and that, that kind of fabulous fortunately I didn't see any snakes but yeah it was lovely it was great well, yeah. well, that, well that leads me to ask what's your funniest thing that happened to you on holiday in the south of France and I was staying in a beautiful place that I hope to go back to called Villefranche-sur-le-Mer. And, um, oh, it's fabulous. I <laughs> love it. It's beautiful. <laughs> You've been there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, it's, it's one of my favourite places in the world. And it, it combines, as you know, then having been there, it, it combines so much because it has the, the luxury of, of, um, of Cannes and Monte Carlo all around you. And it has the fun, like, party town of the mm. city of Nice. But this is a tiny little um, fishing village that is tucked away between Monaco and Nice. And um, and it's very actually chic, isn't it? Very chic, or there's something absolutely. But the cruise ships all come in during the day, and then at night you get the village back to yourself, and it, and it's just this magic little hideaway spot that I love, and I go to quite a lot. But um, um the sea, of course, was calling me again, and I was I was uh-huh. swimming down off the beach, and they had um, I was after going and swimming to. I'm a long distance swimmer, so I I had swum down to the to coves on either side of the beach, and I had learned to actually let the the lifeguard know that I'd be away for quite a while because I had previously gotten into trouble with the lifeguard because I'd gone missing on them. So he was kind oh, of really? used to the fact that I would go and swim off into the distance and not appear for a long time. So on this particular occasion, I was coming back in after a long swim, and there was beautiful surf, which is un- unusual. Um, it, it doesn't usually get that choppy there, but I was playing in the surf. I was kind of body surfing and jumping up and down at the waves. But um, but I am of a certain age and I'm certainly, you know, I'm carrying a little bit of weight at the time, a lot more now. But but anyhow, to cut a long story short, two fishermen thought I was in difficulty oh, and they no. came to rescue me. <laughs> and although I speak a little French, I wasn't quite up to explaining <laughs> to them that I actually wasn't drowning, that I was just having a swim. So these two fishermen, anyhow, and started you know physically lifting me up out of the water and they were big tall men and I was you know I'm only five foot nothing so there I was with my feet spinning between them as they carried me into shore and then I looked at them and they were so gorgeous looking (laughs) stop struggling this is exactly (laughs) I was just about to ask you that I said were they nice you know was it kind of Oh, I, oh, I quite enjoyed it once I relaxed in my little flow, like, and it was quite nice. I, you, should, you should have got, you should, you should have brought them out for a drink because they rescued <laughs> you. <laughs> um, well, the, well, only, the only side about it was that um, I went to the beach the next day and they were there, so I was kind of afraid to get into the water <laughs> in case they come and rescue me again. So. <laughs> 
<laughs> that's really good. That's brilliant. Uh, I can just picture that scene. Uh, <laughs> if, if, if you could be anywhere in the world right now, where would you want to be? Well, funnily enough, I'd love to be back in Villa Francis Mayor. That would be, you know, a very easy one for me and a very easy, mm. quick fix. But but I do have on my my list of places to be, and I'm sure you've been there, and that's Machu Picchu. And uh, yeah. you know, it was on my list, and then I put on the weight, and I kind of let it slide off my list. And I'm so determined now after this lockdown that I'm going to get my fitness back, and I want to be back there. And I, I want to, I really want to experience Machu Picchu, and I want to experience it on horseback. I'd love to do it on horseback. Oh. Well, I've actually been on horses in the Andes. I went around Cusco, and um, they, they do have these fabulous saddles. They're the big kind of um, what's the what's the gauchos? Is that what they're they're called? You know, like, they're like, like yeah. the farmer's saddles, and they're very much like the American Western saddles that you ride when you're, mm. you're in 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 America's heartland and that. And it is so comfortable. It's amazing, and the scenery. Is spectacular when you're up in um, in the Andes. I really I could recommend it. I think that is a great idea. I I didn't. I got the train to Machu Picchu. I didn't do the four day trek. I hate to say I'm a bit of a wuss. I was with my son and we were you know we, we had our biscuits on the side of our coffee. It was kind of that sort of trek. Very sophisticated. <laughs> very very nice. But you can actually walk right up from the little town to Machu Picchu, and I have to say I think it's going to be um more limited and controlled they were starting to do that three years ago when I was there but I think it's going to be even more limited so you'll really have to plan well in ahead but I do believe big big trips like that are going to be in big demand once we do start to travel again yeah I can well appreciate that but you but and, and the way that they were bringing in those restrictions was it to protect the environment yeah or? yeah it was to, to protect the sites because there were just so many tourists Right. Um, so, so you're, kind of, you're being limited, you're given time slots. So I, I can see the rise of the travel agent, Tina, you know, coming back very much so with people planning very mm. well in, in advance, because probably around the world, you know, there will be less visitors to certain sites. So you would have to be more prepared, you know, but that's yeah. kind of a good thing for the environment, too, because although, you know, they really do protect their I mean, Machu Picchu is one of the seven wonders of the, of the modern world. Um, mm. It really is. It, it really is important that, you know, it's not eroded or destroyed in any way by over uh, tourism. So. And we do yeah, have to it's look very after. important, and, and in fact, you know, in all the adventures that I had, that was that was something that kind of leaned rather heavily on me because you do start wondering about large groups of people on trekking trails and and what damage they may be be doing, and and you know, you're sort of marrying the the love of yeah. seeing something and experiencing yeah. something with the need to protect it and preserve it, and even in our own country, our own mountains as well. You know, we we need to be. We, um, we do looking well, to the future and looking at you know ahead and seeing how best to sure planning all yeah. Yeah. Well, what did they say take nothing but photos and leave nothing but footprints you know yeah um, yeah. 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 And, yeah and, and, and okay. we do yeah we, we definitely do well, Tina what's the most spectacular thing you've seen on your travels I think the most spectacular and the most surprising um, was the northern lights and I travelled to Oslo with an Irish adventure company, actually, and to, to Oslo. And we went out uh, beyond there to one of the most northerly peaks. And um, I was literally on the edge of the Bering Sea and I was camped on a frozen lake. 
And I was there for a week and I got to um, go by and travel by um, snow, snow, um, snow ski, but, and jet, but also um, sled, <laughs> um, dog sleds. And oh, wow. Dogs pulling you along. It was absolutely amazing. And I slept under rainbow skins and, um, and et rainbow stew. But I did get to see the Northern Lights not once, but at least four nights they danced for me. And it was oh. absolutely extraordinary. And I went out before, there was a couple of days where, they, where the lights were flirting with us and we didn't get to see them. And I, and I went out at night and with snowshoes on uh, when everybody else was sleeping and I was tramping across the hills in the snow with my snowshoes and um, just taking in the scenery and taking in the the cold iciness of, of, of this wonderful, wonderful place. But 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 on the night that they actually did show up, they showed up so incredibly. And the thing that fascinated me the most was you could still see the moon and the stars through them. I wow. sort of imagined when I looked yeah. at pictures and videos that they were, you know, um, a block of colour. But it but it's it's more um it, it was more almost enchanting than that it was ephemeral it was just beautiful to see this um changing dancing misty lights of green and and we got some some purples and some orange and extraordinary and i took photographs and they they danced for hours and it wow. repeated itself for the next few nights and we were just so wow, incredibly so lucky. lucky it was an incredible experience and really, were you sleeping were you sleeping outdoors or did you we were sleeping in in one of the traditional tents so a big um, um domed shaped tent and sleeping under rainbow skin so we were sleeping on wooden trestles underneath the rainbow skins and there was a fire in the middle of the tent and we we did our cooking on the fire and that's what kept us warm during the night absolutely oh, extraordinary. Oh, that sounds like an incredibly magical experience tina oh my goodness i would love to do that <laughs> and i and, and I would absolutely recommend it to anybody because it didn't require great physical strength, you know, because we, you know, we traveled um, um, by plane and then by bus. And then uh, when we went out into the countryside, we were traveling on, um, there, there were kind of little um, cars pulled by, um, by skis, by motor skis. So we were sitting down and, and brought out and all our gear and everything was brought with us to the campsite. So, and then from the campsite, we used uh, the campsite as, as a central focal point. And from there, we went during the day. We went out on, on ski trips and um, uh, we were pulled by sled skis with the dogs, the huskies. And, mm. uh, and we, we had great, great fun. But, but, it, but you didn't need to be physically, you know, um, active. Strong, yeah. So whereas yeah. before I, I was stomping up mountains and things, this, this was actually quite um, anybody who had... That sounds yeah. more like my sort of travel now. I could do that. <laughs> I could do that for no bother at all. We're covered up in furs and oh, it's oh. just really a very, oh. very unique and wonderful experience. Yeah. Oh, you're... Tina, where would you tell your, your 18-year-old self to go? I would actually tell my 18-year-old self or any 18-year-old to go and try a cruise. Because I always dismissed cruises because I thought they were for old people until I brought my, my family, my, my mother and father on one. And I suddenly realized that I was addicted. I've yeah. been going on cruises ever since. 
And it's just extraordinary because you're on, you know, you, you've got this beautiful hotel, this floating hotel, and you wake up in the morning in a different part of the world. And you get to make your your shore excursions and find out about, you know, some lovely city or some new um, type of archaeology or, you know, there's always something new and fascinating on the agenda. And then you go back um, to your wonderful hotel and and you sail on to um, a new out into the sunset and onto a a new uh, sunrise in some other part. And I think it was absolutely gorgeous. I love cruises now. And you make great friends because you're sitting at the same table every night for however long your cruise is. And uh, and you get to find out about what other people got up to during the day. And I've even had a romance on a cruise. So. Oh, lovely. <laughs> I wouldn't have had you as a cruiser, uh, cruiser Tina, with, with all with all your adventure. That's the complete opposite. But isn't it lovely that you can just enjoy different types of um, of travel? Just equally. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and as I say, I had kind of um, I would have, um, you know, knocked it off the list for me when I was a, a teenager or a young lass in my 20s. I would have thought it was just for older people. But genuinely, no, it's um, it's, it's something that's good for, for all ages. Where is your favourite spot in Ireland or do you have a hidden or secret gem of a, of a place to visit? Lots of secret places in Ireland. I have a huge list of places, but if if I was supposed to pick out a hidden one, perhaps, or or one that isn't so well beaten a track, um, I'd say um, the Blasket Moor, the Great Blasket. And the Silver Strand um, down down in Kerry on the Great Blasket. So, um, and I think in particular, I would, it it would be a particular night that I spent down there because I used to camp out quite a lot on the Great Blasket when I was a a young'un. And it was a particular night that um, I went skinny dipping (laughs) on the Silver Strand and uh, the the seals were all sleeping along and there was a beautiful moon out. And it was the time of year when you have this, um, I think it's phosphorescence, you call it, in the water. Oh, um, it is. Oh, it's beautiful. The luminous little uh, sea sea insects. Oh, my God. And they, 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 um, they become illuminated with friction. So they, they caught along all my the little hairs on my arms and, and legs and, 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 and basically they, I, I, I shone like a fairy, like I lit up the lights. <laughs> and then walking along the beach, your footprints are illuminated in the sand because the wet sand, your feet are pressing down through it. And it was just absolutely magical, uh, just an extraordinary experience. An out-of-world experience here in our own country. In, in our, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I've only ever seen them in Thailand, actually, is where I saw them. I didn't see them in Ireland before. So that's absolutely... Because it's only certain times of the year, isn't it? It's yes. Small, right, um, yeah. small little little time when you can actually see them. And I, I have to mention Lusty Beg here because you're one of the few people I know who've been to Lusty Beg. And I think <laughs> it's a great secret a little hideaway on, on Lower Loch Erne, um, up in Northern Ireland. It's a great it's spot. Wonderful, absolutely wonderful. And we went up as um, a party from work, so we 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 took there was there was a, there was a lot of us that went up, and we had an absolute ball. It looked after us so well. I mean, the food was amazing, the accommodation was incredible, but um, the fun was 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 hilarious and beautiful water and beautiful. Um, there was adventure. Um, uh, games to play and there was there was just some fantastic scenery and we got to do loads of different things and we did some off-roading and lots of different adventures and some archery and yeah that is a hidden spot and it, you don't isn't it? 
Yeah, you don't amazing. hear it very often. And, you know, it's it's and they have beautiful self-catering accommodation and their spa is the cheapest spa I was ever in. And it was glorious, both for seaweed baths and for, you know, for the old waxing and things like that. It was like a quarter of the price anywhere else I've been. It was, you know, maybe because it's in pounds as well. But um, yeah. I, I, I think and the lovely idea of actually you have to you, you when you get there, you have to cross that little small stretch of water. So you're on an yeah. island. And that yeah. is really it, really it felt awesome. amazing it really did talk about a getaway you know and it was only a couple of miles up the road from a couple of hours shall we say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah absolutely and that area in ireland is so rich with the geopark and the beautiful you know the stairway to heaven walkway now through yeah. through the um it's stunning stunning i'm there. glad you reminded me about it because i must put that on my my list of places to go back and, and see as well now when, when, when the restrictions are lifted. Yeah, yeah. And there's so much going on up there, like, you know, it's, and it would be a lovely base to actually go and see and do other things from as well. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Lovely that was great fun. We <laughs> <laughs> and and um, what about uh, on your travels? Is there anything strange that you've eaten? Hmm. It might not sound strange, but it's a, it's a flashback to the mountains. I think the strangest thing, because it was out of context, was was popcorn on on Everest. Popcorn! <laughs> wow! Yeah. And um, we had had a diet. Now there were quite a few unusual things that I had eaten along the way, um, and and I could name a few of them. Yeah, actually, probably that was for in terms of of things that stood out from from a, a culinary perspective i'd say the whole trip to everest was one because we i ate yak meat which was um uh, interesting and some yak. of the climbers yak. didn't want to yeah yeah um so that was interesting but but the but the popcorn was hilarious because we had spent three weeks eating um kind of a very simple stew of of um, vegetables and eggs because you can't take fresh meat with you you know when you're going through the heat and then into the ice um sure. the, you're, you're limited with what you can bring with you so we had eaten a, a diet of stews of vegetables and eggs and things like that and um we'd eaten lots of um porridge with with um yak butter added to it um to give us energy and wow. so after this very restricted diet it just seemed really strange that we were in a tea house on the way back down and they had popcorn so we we feasted on popcorn <laughs> it was like it a was treat i'd ever tasted <laughs> of course of course when it's a treat like that my goodness but when it comes to hotels now when it comes to hotels yeah it sounds like you are a real adventurous traveler traveler tina like you really will go anywhere but is there anything particularly you like about hotels or any hotel special hotel you've been to that you you'd like to tell us well about. you mentioned spas and and i absolutely i love the spa experience but and strangely i'm not into um um i'm not too keen on massage or facials my friends can't understand this because they reckon that it's one of the most um, blissful things of being alive is having a oh. good massage oh well now elaine crowley will tell you that there's nothing to beat it it's her favorite <laughs> I love spas, but not for the facials and not for the massages. I love it for, I love the sense of candles and the smells in the air, um, but it's the watery things that I love. I love the plunge pools. I love swimming pools. I love spas with the swimming pool. I'm very disappointed if I go to a spa and it doesn't have a swimming pool. So for me, it's all the, all the watery things that goes on. But um, I think the strangest one that I ever went to was, again, in, in Russia, in the Caucasus, 
and um, I had brought a swoon um, costume with me because they, I had been told that there was going to be a spa at this hotel. And there was, but it was a plunge pool, a massive freezing cold plunge pool. Um, and, and this was in a place in the Shiget in Terskol. It's where the military billets for the KGB were originally during the Cold War. Uh, and this plunge pool was the large of it. It was as large as an ordinary swimming pool. Um, but, 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 but most people used it naked. Oh, this is, <laughs> I've had this conversation before on this podcast with people <laughs> about, about, you know, you know, our, our, our re- reluctance to remove our coverings of the Irish yeah, reluctance. I, I, didn't, I, didn't quite, I wasn't quite brave enough to lose the swimsuit, but, um, but I wasn't often put by other people going in naked. But, but yeah, it was an extraordinary experience. And then you go into um, a sauna afterwards and, um, and, and hit yourself with, with um, birch sticks or whatever oh, yeah. stick. <laughs> Get the circulation going. <laughs> yeah. Sounds a bit oh, weird out of context. It, you know, it does. It does. Oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and you know, Russia is quite different. I've only been to St. Petersburg myself, but um, mm. it, what, what, what struck you? I mean, obviously, you've described perfectly the landscape, but is there anything else that, that struck you about Russia? Um, yeah, I, I found that um, one, one of the, the big things for me was that I, I it, it really showed to me how little I knew about Russia because you know I grew up in a world where we were coming out of the back of the Cold War and um, we were watching our knowledge of Russia was really sort of um, very limited yeah yeah Um, and I was taken by the contrast and and, and of course look the immensity of of the landmass itself but the contrast between rich and poor um, like Mm -hmm. from and I'd mentioned about traveling through the countryside I was looking at shacks that were literally um, holes in, in, in fields with um, baked bean cans used as chimneys um, to being in Moscow and being in a VIP um, mm. uh, party at the, the you know in, in a hotel looking out over the, the whole of, of Moscow and and then yeah. down in the square and seeing you know people queuing and and, and then seeing the richness of um, the, um, the, the 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 wonderful shops and the stores and the malls and the jewelry. So, what what was it like in in the fancy hotel in Russia? Like, were you in near Red Square or? Um, no, we were actually in the equivalent of a travelodge in the outsides or the outskirts of Moscow. But we had gone into central Moscow to party as VIPs in one of the slinkier models. <laughs> so that again in itself was a huge contrast. Um, because we were literally in this rooftop VIP restaurant type um, um, suite where we, were, you know, was open to um, to the to the nighttime. Like it was, it was rooftop, so obviously you could see the stars and you could see the whole of Moscow. And um, we had very very beautiful people serving us wonderful drinks and nice snacks, and we just had the best of everything. But at the same time, we had the hotel advising us to get taxis organized from within the hotel and not to get taxis on the street. And there was this kind of an ominous vibe um, running through. We were only there for 24 hours, but it was just, again, it, it just seemed like so many different things going on. There was, there was um, incredible wealth, incredible luxury. There was poverty. There was this feeling of danger as well. 
Um, and it, it just felt absolutely intriguing to me. I'd love to go back. I'd love to spend more time there. Yeah. But, but uh, what, what, year, what year was that, Tina? That would have been around 2010, I think. Yeah. 2010. Yeah, it's more so, recently. It was more recently now. I was in St. Petersburg, but see Petersburg. But what struck me, we drove out into the countryside to go and see the Catherine Palace, you know, with the famous amber, amber mm. room. But what struck me was it was like loads of Ballymun Towers, if you remember what Ballymun Towers yeah. look like. And, and and just masses and masses of open countryside that was obviously agricultural land. But just every town had no heart or centre or shops even. It was just um, yeah. stacks of Ballymun Towers. And they weren't particularly well kept. And the tour guide said to us, you can tell, you know, the, the quality of the accommodation by the windows on whether they're really old and single pane or whether they've got, you know, double glazing or they're kind of, you know, that, that that's the only difference you can tell. And she just said everybody lived in these. And, um, you, you know, that, that idea of communism where, you know, everybody's yeah. equal, but some are more equal than others. You know, it's it's um, it's it's quite strange. And you, you it's only when you read books like, I think, Animal Farm by George Orwell that you really get the idea, you know, it's very difficult to get. A socialist society right because of yeah, the extreme, you'll always have the yeah. imagery that you have about the, the, the you know the high bills that I also felt that um you know you would be driving through a village in the Caucasus on your way to nowhere like you know literally um traveling for hours by bus into the middle of this most barren countryside beautiful but barren and you'd you'd come through this this village of high-rise apartments. And it almost felt that you were looking at deserted buildings, but the the, the the guides that were with us assured us that people were actually still living in them, but they looked dilapidated and and abandoned yeah. kind of, of it, life. It's, 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 quite, it's quite depressing. And, and you know, that's what that, that's what kind of makes makes you concerned when you see kind of developments in Dublin being discussed, you know, about especially this um uh what's it uh, co-living you know um these co-living yeah. places here it's, it's kind of tipping on that and you kind of go Ooh, you know there is plenty of land in the country you know like why are we pushing people into high rise that way um yeah it, yeah it, 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 i mean we, we we it's not our first flirtatious um experience as well with with um shall we say intensive living in because we, we had two vacant reports and we we went down the road even through the boom times of building high density housing which now everybody agrees is a bad thing yeah. so people need a bit of space you know and uh, i think we do i think we do i, I like the sound i like Obviously, the sound of moving yeah i like the sound of moving you know m- moving you know re- repopulating these small villages yeah. and towns and maybe starting the, the, the um, grassroots the, the, Businesses. Yeah, the McVer- the McVerry Trust uh, have been doing great work in that regard, and, and it's certainly I've read a few reports where um, they're looking at going into um, areas right across the country in towns where you have deserted buildings and buildings that have been fallen into disrepair, and they're they're doing the model of of working on putting a commercial property into the bottom part and a residential property into the upper part of buildings which would be such a win-win for for villages and towns that absolutely it's kind of like the the old way we used to live you know the way you'd have the butcher lived above their shop and you'd have the grocer lived above their shop and the shoemaker even you know Mm -hmm. and and the idea of you know um small businesses getting away from, from from feeding amazon and all these these large companies and that don't need it, you know, the idea I mean, of the pandemic will actually, you know, um, change 
you know, bring about some changes for the better, because I think we've all now learned that we don't have to be in a car going to work all the time, you know, and yeah. of course, some businesses are more suited to that than others. But I, I hope some of the changes that have happened uh, could become positive influences for the future. Yeah, perhaps, yeah I, I hope so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, People absolutely. <laughs> Of every day, and then the exodus in the evening. You know, you know, and you know, I quite like the idea of of old fashioned travel, romantic travel on trains, and taking the actual journey as a part of your your um, trip. Do you remember the way, like they did these grand tours in Victorian and Edwardian times? You know, young people when they finished college went off and they did their grand tours very slowly. We have interrailing mm-hmm. now, I suppose, but the idea of you know, instead of just hopping on a plane, actually getting a boat and experiencing traveling with the sun, you know, rather than um, just being Living. there instantaneously. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we're, we're so, that's one of the things when you come back from, and when you say grand tour, it, it kind of rings a bell for me, but when you come back from an adventure where you've been away out of your normal um, mind space for a number of weeks, uh, you, you get this feeling that, you know, you suddenly realize that, that life is for living and that we spend so much time, trying to rush to be in work, to rush to achieve, to rush to make an income, to rush to build a house, to rush to have a family. We're rushing to this end point, which is death. Yes. <laughs> it's sitting back and relaxing and enjoying what we have. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. You know, life is a journey and it is like we're on a train, you know, and, and, and everything we do. And as you say, like, we don't, don't put off if an opportunity comes up. Um, and, and I said yes to a lot of things that were very awkward for me to to attend at the time and um, because of my family life and what, what was going on with my work and everything. But I, I tended to say yes. And boy, am I glad I did now. Um, things yeah. like going to space camp in Battle, Alabama, you know, and, yeah. and, and crashing a shuttle um, into the moon. <laughs> Uh, because you know but 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 experimenting and making a rocket and learning about uh, the space race I mean my god that blew my mind the idea that after the end of the second world war uh, it's kind of like the Americans and the Russians just carved up the Nazi scientists and Mm. the Russians brought them east and the Americans brought them west and and that was the start of the cold war the space race so it was really you know the German sign great scientific minds that they used Uh, I mean you know, how many people think of that when they look back at their James Bond movies about the Cold mm. War, you know, about East versus West and all that. So um, I, I always think it, travel, there's nothing greater than going to a very different space to actually uh, see the world with new eyes, you know. And, and then this is why it's so important that we keep it alive and, and talk about it and, and um, get back there, you know. Yeah, it's educational. It's life changing. It's it takes a pause. It allows you to get out out of your box and look back in at yourself. And I think that um, I think that's an important thing for for all of us to be able to do. Yeah. So, so what's top of your bucket list, uh, Tina? Then once we get out of here, um, once we can move again. First of all, I want to go to Villefranche and to sit on the beach and to swim in the sea, possibly twenty one degrees. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, maybe be rescued by more French fishermen. <laughs> That's number one. Number two is back here at home. I want to get fit enough to be able to do our own beautiful, um, fantastic mountains here at home. And then particularly down to my lovely Karen Tool and to be able to do her again. And um, the third thing is Machu Picchu. Um, that's definitely not going to escape me in the 
in the in the time ahead. I I, I really really want to I want to do Machu Picchu. Yeah, so it's a one two three on that. So so what what was you working on then at the moment? What are your um? Is there anything else that you're involved in? Um, you know, you as I said, you've done great charity work. Would you like to just say the charity? Well, for my I'm full time carer now for Dad. Um, so that takes up most of my time. Dad's 95 and he suffers from dementia. And I advocate for the Irish Alzheimer's Society. And I have accidentally over the course of the past year found myself uh, more and more um, speaking about uh, family carers. So they've had a very tough year. Um, I, I don't want to mention the war, but we weren't included on the vaccination list, the priority list. and We took it all very badly because we felt very exposed, not that we wanted ourselves to be um, sort of safe, but it was because if we get sick, the people that we're looking after. after yeah. mm. So it's it's led to sort of a year of me um, talking about that. Um, but but un- unfortunately, that hasn't changed. So we'll see the way that the rest of the year pans out in terms of getting vaccines. I'm fortunate enough now that my, my lovely dad has had um, both of his Pfizer vaccines. So in one week's time, he'll be fully protected, which is a, a huge weight off my mind. So along with that, I... Um, I write, uh, I, I do some shifts for News Talk and Today FM who've been wonderful to me. My, my radio family have allowed me to freelance around my family care needs, um, which is wonderful because it, it still keeps me um, current and, and keeps me engaged in the workplace. Um, yeah. And it's, you know, it's, I think, very important for me to be able to do that. And I also, um, I write for a number of websites that um, look at, at family carers but also look at dementia and also look at aging and and uh, talk about stories that brings carers together and and hopefully shares experiences so i'm quite busy quite busy oh, yeah. and you're, you're a voice for others you know and, and i think it's really it's great what you're doing and people can can actually find out about you on your website tinagates.com yeah right? i'm basically on everything you know as tina gates so i'm on linkedin i'm on facebook i'm on twitter i have the websites i'm all over the place but yeah put tina gates into google and you'll find me somewhere <laughs> how can someone listening help is is there somewhere they can donate to really make a difference to give respite to carers um, it's not really a case of donating. It's really a case of pressurising our government when it comes to the mm. next election to, um, right. to realise that, that um, carers really can't be uh, taken for granted forever. I mean, one common experience that has come across my desk and, and come to me uh, with lots of people contacting me over the past 12 months is that um, it seems like every wave, every generation of carers comes up against the same wall and we all find that there's a lack of um, diagnosis for the people that we're looking after. There's a lack of supports or, or lack of access to supports. There are supports available, but it's hard to find out about them. And then it's hard to achieve them. Um, even looking for um, a carer's um, um, allowance takes 12 to 16 weeks to process, um, during which time you you have no idea that you're going to actually get it or not. And you're spinning out. You, you're not understanding what you're going to do or, or how you're going to manage so everything is really really very difficult um, and each generation and each new set of carers is falling into exactly the same set of problems I think that's uh, something to strive for Tina and as a great work you're doing and um, listen thank you so much for talking to me today I've, I've really really enjoyed it I feel like I've been in amazing unusual places you brought me back to Africa which I absolutely adore and have set 
the challenge. I'm definitely going to aim for Kilimanjaro once we can, <laughs> once we can do uh, large scale adventure bucket list trips like that again. And well, thank you. I've, I've absolutely feel as if we've we've travelled the world together. Today. <laughs> it's a really, really nice thing to do. Isn't it, isn't it lovely? And it's still there. And it's and the world isn't going anywhere. And it's there for us. We just need to make sure that we um, we are allowed to travel, and we do have to stand up for our constitutional rights. That's another thing. Um, yes. But I think I think as journalists, we can't let that slip either. You know, I think it's very important. Very important. Uh, that we come out the other end of this um, of this pandemic with the same freedoms um, that, that we had. We don't have them taken away from us. I think that's something, you know, equally important. Hugely so. important and, and something that we, we mm. need to uh, keep a very close eye on in the, in the months. Yeah, years. I mean, yeah. a lot of a lot of the a lot of what the conspiracy theorists were banging on about a year ago are actually now mainstream news. And that's actually yeah. quite quite scary and it's something mm. that um i think it's it, it's worth people keeping an eye on it especially any changes to the constitution that are made um you know under the guise of of of, of the pandemic but are actually actually will 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 change how we can actually longer live. reach we need to yeah. make sure that the um, yeah. sunset is hmm. And I think that's it, but that, that's probably another conversation for another day, Tina. But, <laughs> but listen, thanks so much again. And I look forward to seeing you in the Elaine yeah. studio when we're all back in the studio. <laughs> That'd be wonderful. I really look forward to that too. <laughs> yeah. Great, Tina. Thanks so much. Right. Bye-bye well, it was lovely to take time out to talk to Tina. She's one of the nicest people I've met on my broadcasting travels. And I've certainly been travelling for the last eight years. So in a way, I've enjoyed having time to reflect on these over the last year. I spent, in fact, the latter part of it editing and crafting my book, Journey to the Heartland. And writing a book is a personal journey that, as authors, we take alone. And while you're in a book contract, it can feel similar to running on a hamster wheel with frenzied attempts to be more inspiring and better and stronger than your last book. So I had stepped off that um, hamster wheel in 2013 after completing six books in six years and I was truly exhausted. So it wasn't intentional to reinvent myself as a travel writer, but my wanderlust and the opportunity to write for travel drew me away from the world of books. I've been writing features and articles for newspapers and magazines um, all over the world. And I've been writing for Irish newspapers and magazines and international ones. And it's great to give snapshots of different cultures and events that I, I took and experienced on my travels. I was transported with each trip that I took, whether it was to a new state in America or a new country in Asia or the joy of ticking off um you know, major trips like like visiting Machu Picchu from my long bucket list. I mean, I feel very privileged to have traveled so much. But at the back of my mind was the knowledge that with this uh, well-spent time, I would be able to some stage use use my travels to inspire and maybe write a book. Um, more often than not, while I was on my travels, I brought one or both of my children and I did this to broaden their minds and teach them about life and culture in a way that can't be compared to any other sort of learning that they they may do in the classroom. 
Uh, we've made funny poses on the Great Wall of China and we've ki- kayaked through Hongs in Thailand. And uh, we, we even got a fit of the giggles in the Amber Room in the Catron Palace in St. Petersburg. Uh, places that I've mentioned in, in my chat earlier with, with Tina today. But um, travel writing has taken me and shown me really the wonders of the world. And some highlights I do have to mention include uh, safaris, safaris to Tanzania and South Africa. And I actually experienced uh, Mardi Gras in Mobile in Alabama, which is actually was actually the first um, Mardi Gras, even older than New Orleans. Uh, one of the most remarkable things I did do was attend the Kentucky Derby. It was actually extremely wet and rainy, one of the most unsuccessful Kentucky Derbies. But that was a a remarkable display of just culture and excitement. And, you know, whether we agree with these events or not, they are part of what makes us who we are as society. Um, But it did take a pandemic to stop me in my tracks and make me evaluate all that I've seen and all that is great in this world and what it has to offer. And and indeed, I love um, quoting from Mark Twain because I really think he sums it all up when he says, travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry and narrow mindedness. Broad, wholesome, charitable views of men and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of the earth all one's lifetime. And I think we've been feeling seriously um, lost, those of us who love travel especially, being under really like a form of house arrest during the pandemic and not being allowed to move and to see and to touch and to to really um, experience the world. So hopefully this will all change as the year progresses. But one of my pivotal adventures uh, in my memory was taken in 2014 when I set off on a road trip through Oklahoma with my father. I I packed a copy of Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath in my suitcase to help inspire me. And it's something that I have done on my travels. For example, I've taken Ernest Hemingway to Cuba with me and um, taken Dylan Thomas to Wales. So I I have found that um, doing this really helps me understand someone else's point of view of of the place I'm visiting. And I found in Oklahoma a state that is filled with really warm country folk who who are eager to lend you a helping hand and give guidance and that life is quite simple there um, and has been complicated by a world that is dominated by big corporations dictating the future. You know, we, we stayed on a working ranch and we saw the care and passion that these people gave as they tended to their cattle. Um, and yet how restricted they were with what they could do with their cattle. They weren't allowed to have them organic. They had to inject antibiotics into them. And a lot of the farmland was being, you know, hoovered up by large corporations uh, in America, which is something that's quite dangerous that's happening. So I actually saw great similarities between the evolution of how the Great Depression came about and the warning signs of where the US was progressing in 2014. Um, And I was overwhelmed by the stories of the Native Americans and the decimation of their land and cultures. And yet I felt they still have so much wisdom to share. So like I had my father with me on this trip and he is an incredibly wise countryman who grew up on a farm. And I saw lots of similarities between the way of life in the middle of America and the way our um, forefathers, you know, earned a living on the land in Ireland. So with all these thoughts in my head, I knew that I had the seeds of a novel germinating away there. 
And I did start the novel in 2016 and had the name Journey to the Heartland for it. But um, I, I tried desperately to find inside myself what I was writing about and the novel just didn't didn't come about. But I found that as time had, had passed, 2020 was actually the zeitgeist and time to dust down my novel and, and reflect on how the world had changed. Uh, during the pandemic was the perfect time to reassess and conclude the book. So America's heartlands and the states in the Midwest stretching across the, con- across the continent, you know, they, they conjure up a way of life that is fast disappearing. And as we have had to look inside ourselves during this period of introspection and isolation with the COVID crisis, global crisis, I've assessed how much of the past needs to remain and the importance of learning from our elders. Because although Journey to the Heartland is a story of love, and all that makes us human and connected. Um, There is a big dollop of spirituality thrown in. And I think in a post-COVID sanitised world, I would hate to see the disappearance of spirituality because I think it's more important than ever now to reach into our hearts and connect to our spirits. Um, This is part of the message uh, conveyed by my lead character in the novel, who is a fountain of wisdom and common sense. And um, he's actually visually impaired. But despite that, he he does say that he he has other um, senses have have heightened since he loses his sight. So as an author, I've always been amazed at the cycles in history. And in in the words of the German philosopher Hegel, my favourite quote is the only thing we learn from history is that we don't learn from history. And I think now is a time when we're living um, in that it's more important than ever to learn from history. Watch what happened in previous pandemics. Watch what happened previous times when there was, you know, a suppression of human rights. Watch, you know, how the world changes because of large scale events and make sure that we don't repeat mistakes. So with with this melting pot of ideas, um, I crafted Journey to the Heartland and I have given, um, I hope, readers much to discuss. It was actually chosen for the Hope Foundation Book Club for March uh, in in Cork. And I met the lovely uh, people involved in that. And, you know, the Hope Foundation is a wonderful charity that I would recommend people look up and try and help support because they help the street people, the poorest of the poor in, in Calcutta in India. And they make a real difference to people's lives. Um, I'm also available for book clubs if anybody listening is in a book club and they would like uh, to get in touch. You can visit me via my website, thenoveltraveller.com or on michellewaltjackson.com. And what I'll do is I can provide you with the books and um, come along and visit by Zoom. Uh, it's it's a great way now for people to connect and um, hopefully the, the book will bring pleasure to people who enjoy reading about America and, and about spiritual ideas and, and philosophies because there's a lot of philosophy in the book. So um, it's published by the novelpress.com and you can buy it from Kenny's bookshop. And uh, having written for the Irish Times business for several years, I realised that it's more important than ever now to support Irish businesses. So whether it's the book centre or Kenny's or, you know, your local bookshop, we can't all download from Amazon and we need to uh, look after our homegrown industries. So that's why I'm actively promoting buying Irish and local now more than ever. So finally, I'd like to thank you for listening to my podcast each week. And if you missed a week, do listen back to an episode. That might inspire some of your own novel travels. And I'll still be on The Elaine Show on Virgin Media every Tuesday. Well, every second Tuesday. And you can listen out for me on The Hard Shoulder on News Talk 2 as I'll be back on the airwaves weekly in May.
So ciao for now and thanks for, for listening. And I'm going to leave you as always with this gorgeous piece of music from Pat Coldrick. Do check out his album Kayando and it's Oreo Sunrise. So as I'll say, ciao for now.